Okay, and welcome back to Fast Jet Performance 9, I believe it is. I'm Tim Davies. Uh, today's post is on Sam dodging over the Nevada desert while let all flying is still necessary and concerns. An exercise I did back in 2007 on Operation Red Flag, which is a big uh, exercise run in America. Um, and it brings together composite air operations or CAMEOs, multiple aircraft, uh, to learn and to train together. Of my friends and colleagues that have been killed in military aircraft, they have had all one thing in common. They were all in control of the aircraft when they died. Low-level flying is an unforgiving business, and it doesn't take much to get it wrong. This is why we have currencies, proficiencies, and rules to make sure that we are safe to operate when close to the ground. You see, humans are exceptionally poor at multitasking, and pilots are no different. Everybody thinks that pilots must be good at it because... They just should be, but nothing could be further from the truth. Pilots don't multitask, they just prioritize a task list exceptionally quickly. When a pilot is flying, they try to have as clear a mind as possible. I liken it to like a blank piece of paper or a whiteboard on an office wall. When a task comes in, such as a radio call, radar contact, or something that requires an unplanned action from the pilot, it needs to be dealt with as efficiently as possible. It's like the task is automatically written onto the whiteboard, but only one task can fit at any one time. The pilot must deal with it as fast as they can so that they can clear the whiteboard for the next task. Sometimes this might mean that the task gets half done or postponed as the next task that has come in is deemed more important. This is called prioritization. If one task is ongoing when another task comes in, then the pilot will attempt to compartmentalize the task, putting them both onto the whiteboard. In this case, both tasks are now being done poorly. If another task comes in and the pilot cannot clear the whiteboard quickly enough, then task saturation can occur. It is at this point that most of my friends have been killed. The experienced pilot recognizes task saturation approaching and applies the mantra, aviate, navigate, communicate. For most pilots, hearing is the first sense we lose when we become overloaded. You miss a radio call. Personally, when I stop being able to effectively communicate with my formation or with air traffic, I recognize this as my first indication that all is becoming too much. At this point, especially if I'm at low level, I prioritize the flying of the aircraft and step my height up a little. I prioritize the flying. The quote here is, you start with a bag full of luck and an empty bag of experience. The trick is to fill the bag of experience before you empty the bag of luck. I have a friend who was a rear seater or a wizzo, weapon systems operator in a tornado GL4 that crashed on the east coast of England. They were flying at 200 feet when the aircraft hit a flock of bird and lost power to both the engines. The pilot was so involved in trying to get at least one engine relit that my friend had to initiate the command eject system, removing them both from the aircraft seconds before it stalled, quickly losing lift and impacting the ground. The subsequent inquiry concluded that if the ejection had been over a second later, then they would have both been killed. So task saturation is a killer, especially when close to the ground. So to practice for it, we gradually load up our students in a controlled environment on instructional and monitored sorties. It is important for us to get them to recognize the onset of overload so that they can do something about it. Now, recent media coverage of fast jet kinetic operations against ISIS targets in Syria and Iraq shows that the majority of the employment of weapons and airborne assets is done from the medium level environment. One can be forgiven for thinking that the practice of low flying has little relevance in modern operational theatres. 
It is true that it is easier for remotely employed sensor operators of unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs and fast jet aircrew to discriminate targets from height. It is also true that operating in the medium level airspace gives the battlefield commander real-time eyes on and in the world of command accountability and moral responsibility this can be very necessary. In the first Gulf War of 1991 the RAF were convinced that the main threat to their bomber force was from the medium level strategic surface to air missile system or SAMS employed liberally throughout Iraq. With this knowledge they decided to employ their GR1 and GR4 force in the low level airborne interdiction or AI role against runways and military targets using the JP233 and 1000 pound bombs. Within seven days they had lost five of their tornadoes from a force of 45 all to anti-aircraft fire from in the vicinity of their targets although two of these have not been confirmed. It was soon realised that a permissive upper air environment through the targeting of any integrated air defence systems or IADs would need to be established in order to enjoy uninterrupted targeting capacity in the medium level airspace and to keep aircraft clear of the lower altitude manned portable air defence system or man pads and small arms threats in any future theatre. So why, when the rest of the world has seemingly moved on to medium level operations, do we as an air force still teach low level flying as an essential skill? Low-level flying is one of the most demanding skills that any pilot can learn, and on any platform, including multi-engine or rotary. From 2003 to 2007, I was a four-ship leader. I was night vision goggles qualified. I was operational low-flying qualified, combat-ready employed, and I was on a Northern Tornado GR4 squadron. I was also an electronic warfare instructor, responsible for educating my squadron about surface-to-air missile systems and integrated air defense systems so that we could best employ tactics against any threat they pose. I would also work with the qualified weapons instructors or the QIs in order to find ways that we could prosecute our missions without being targeted by these systems. Now traditionally, back in the mid-2000s, most of our planning assumptions would be based on single-digit surface-to-air missile systems and we would routinely fight against SA-2, SA-3, 6, 8 and maybe even SA-11. The later S-300 and S-400 series, which we know as in NATO as SA-10 and SA-20, would not be something that we'd routinely train for, as we wouldn't really concentrate on them until we conducted training in the medium-level airspace. Now, predominantly during this period, our training was all low-level based, and not surprisingly, we were very good at it. We would fly as singletons and pairs, or a two- or four-ship versus a hostile threat. Low-level evasion, as that was called, is a complicated skill and the workload for all involved is high. Now, to improve our crews, we would routinely send them overseas on exercise, such as the Tactical Leadership Programme, or TLP, in Belgium, which is now in Albacete, in Spain. Uh, We'd go to Malaysia, India, North America also. On these exercises, most of the Blue Force presentations would consist of stacking the holding area with the bombers from all nations, and this was called the Strike Package. The offensive counter-air or OCA consisting of a fighter aircraft would push some time ahead of the strikers in an attempt to target enemy air threats. The strikers would flow behind them also in the medium level airspace which was classed as airspace that would be in the 10s, 20s or 30,000 foot height ranges. On all of the exercises that I participated in there was only one that ever saw me staying in the medium level block that I was assigned for the mission. Normally it went something like this. Uh, I was at Red Flag back in 2007, pushing in high block one, probably about 18,000 feet, simulating four times payway twos, which are laser-guided bombs, and two times AIM-9 lemurs, which are heat seekers for self-protection. 
With me, in the formation, we had a couple of air-launched anti-radiation missile or alarm shooters that would attempt to target a tactical SAM that our planners had identified in the target area. I was to drop my weapons from 18,000 feet onto a bunker, which was my target that day. We'd push behind some Mirages and F-16 CJs who were in the self-escort role. It was good to be behind the CJs, they could throw beyond visual range or BVR missiles like the best of them, and could inadvertently offer our formation some protection. The US Navy F-18s were playing red air, and very quickly our strike frequency came alive with our Exercise Airborne Warning and Control System, or AWACS, calling hostile threats inbound. As a formation, we'd all briefed a range from the hostile threats that we'd either need to abort at or detonate to a low level. As the red air closed in on us, it quickly became apparent that a decision was going to have to be made. Along with indications of hostile aircraft closing in on my formation, my radar warning receiver, or RWR, started receiving missions from a straight flush radar associated with an SA-6, a particularly aggressive missile system when targeting a fully laden GR-4. It was obvious to all in our formation that the most comfortable place to be this evening was at 100 foot over the Nevada desert. Up here, I am their target, but down there, they are mine. But AWACS call came. Hostiles were inside our detonate range and the call was made. All eight GR4s slowly rolled inverted and pulled as hard as they could towards the desert floor below. Chaff filled the sky behind us. We were on an express elevator going down and the floor I had selected was labelled to hell and fast. The GR4 is a workhorse and much like the furry, long-nosed, gallopy type, it needs to be pushed to really perform. When it is loaded up with stores, it is not a fan of the upper air, but with the right crew and at low level, it can truly excel. All GR4 crews feel secure in the weeder sphere. After all, it's what we spent most of our time training for. So now we are all down operational low flying or OLF heights over the desert inbound the target. The Mirages have come down with us, as have some US F-15Es and Israeli F-16s that were 10 miles north of the track. They seem to have latched onto our formation, which was nice of them. On next size, like red flag, safety is in numbers. My SA-6 indications had disappeared, but I was still being targeted by a persistent F-18 that hadn't been told that its biggest threat was probably the CJs that had stayed high. My radar altimeter or radar low height alarm was set for 90 feet and I was over a flat desert floor doing almost 450 knots and flying between 150 to 250 feet. I was concentrating hard on staying low and my weapon system operator or WIZO was mainly heads in trying to bring up a new weapons package and changing the delivery profile from medium level release to a low level loft. To release our weapons we were going to have to be closer in to the target than we anticipated and that SA-6 was now going to be a problem. AWACS was telling us that one of the hostile F-18s had become very attracted to my tornado and that I was definitely his new favourite toy. It was time for me to leave. I called to the rest of the formation that I was targeted and I started to beam south to reduce the rate at which our range of the hostile was decreasing. This might help drag him off the rest of the package and allow our OCA time to start targeting into the red air. My weapon system officer was starting to do some very public maths calculating the possibility of us reaching the target within our prescribed time window. The further south we evaded, the less likely we could deliver our weapon to the target on time. We had some ghost slots that, as a squadron, we had already planned for, and these would allow an aircraft that had got airborne late to still prosecute its target, but only after the main package had gone through the target area. We could take one of those slots if we couldn't make our original time. Now, there was furious maths in the cockpit, and then there was a watch the hills, and then there was more furious maths. Then we heard that the F-18 that had been targeting us had been killed out by OCA. 
I'll plan her work. I swung back west inbound the target area. It was going to be close, but if we pushed our speed up to just over 500 knots, we could hit the back end of our original time on target, or our TOT bracket, and calculating the bomb's time of flight, we can make sure that the impact of the bombs was inside the slot time. It was possible, as long as we weren't targeted again. There was some more very public maths, and that revealed that with our current fuel state, we would need to have a straight run into the target and back out again. Any evasion at this point, and we wouldn't make it back to the egress area, and that would be a mission abort. As we approached the target area, it was obvious that the alarms hadn't been deployed as expected. The target was most likely going to still be protected by the SA-6 and a roving SA-8 that had just been called active by AWACS. My Wizzo prepared the defensive aids that we could use against the systems, but the RWR was still strangely silent. Now, as an EY, I knew what was coming and it wasn't going to be pretty. We rolled in and commenced our target run, and at the required range, I cleared the airspace above and started my pull to 20 degrees nose up, where I committed the four laser-guided bombs to the battlefield. The weapons release button would signal each bomb to release from the aircraft with a corresponding thump. And then Mr. Badness arrived, and he brought all of his friends along for good measure. Out of starboard, go lightning one. The RWR lit up with a plethora of systems and alerts coming from all directions. Multiple alarms filled the cockpit. As I overbanked, my wizard dispensed chaff and activated the defensive aids. We were in a SAM trap and we both knew it. The only place for us now was back at low level and preferably behind any high ground that we could find. I took an aggressive nose-down attitude, calling out the heights on the radar as we descended towards the dark desert below. I eventually leveled the aircraft just above 100 feet and I left the throttles in reheat. We were running away like a scolded cat and we were trying our best to kinematically defeat the various missiles. We were now burning upwards of 600 kilograms of fuel per minute and we needed to find some rocks and fast. We were burning far too much fuel to make it home. Eventually, I deselect the reheat and I headed for the high ground. Magic, Wolf 2, Defense, Mud 6, Bullseye, 280, 46 miles, egressing north. Another warning of an active missile launch, then another. To say the cockpit was busy was an understatement. The AWAC strike frequency was alive with flight leaders all reporting the new SAM launches. One of our alarm-carrying tornadoes had managed to target into a system, but we were too occupied to work out which one. We finally made the high ground and hid low in the desert floor. For a few miles, the mountain range routed parallel to our egress trek, and one by one, the SAMs dropped from the RWR. I brought the throttles back to conserve fuel, and as I rolled out on east, the lone F-15C closed into two miles battle. We ended up going home together, providing each other with mutual support. As we reached the egress point, we slowly climbed, and my new playmate slipped back into a trail position for the recovery back to Nellis, our fuel situation prompting for an expeditious recovery. It was a furiously busy sortie for all players, and rightly so on one of the last days of the exercise. We'd lost one tornado, from an SA-11 that he stumbled upon, but none from Red Air. My wizard and I came back alive, but it was a close-run thing, and a film of our engagement was played in the debrief to the entire Red Flag audience. It came from a camera mounted to the, an SA-8 emulator. It showed the tornado aggressively manoeuvring with reselected and its wings fully aft. It eventually disappeared behind some small hills. The SAM operators all agreed that the tornado would have escaped the missiles. By using train to mask us against the SAMs, we had survived the engagement and we'd made it home. Now, I could tell you another story of a German tornado escaping both SAMs and air threats on an exercise in Alaska by running away through the mountains at low level and against exercise rules. Or another story of how a colleague escaped a particular persistent Turkish F-16 over Germany whilst on TLP, again, by using the low-level environment. 
I also have a friend who was a naval Harrier pilot and using the low level environment, he was the last person ever to drop a 1000 pound bomb from a low level attack profile whilst he was serving in Afghanistan. Now, the low level environment can challenge even the best of pilots. So its utility as a learning instrument is compelling. If pilots are unable to use it to practice task prioritization when in benign environments, then they will struggle with it when it is called for in anger. This is why we continue to train our pilots in the practice of low flying as we recognize its continued necessity for when things go wrong. Look at it as a way of helping to fill the experience bag before the one containing luck becomes empty. And remember, low level is your friend. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Longer posts than normal. Hopefully it gives you some kind of insight into what we do when we go on exercises, especially the big exercises that we uh, conduct in North America. Thanks for listening. Any feedback, please hook me up on Twitter, LinkedIn, on the site itself in the comments. That's a great place to put that stuff there. I'll make sure I talk to you guys and I'll answer those as well. Again, thanks for listening. Tim Davies, Fast Jet Performance.